0: Well, everybody gets resituated here, I uh, just want to add a word of welcome and say it is so good to see everybody here tonight, especially when I think back three years uh, to this night and I preached to an empty house because it was on the front end of COVID and so we had lit candles and the whole thing behind and no blackness out in front of me. So it's good to see uh, you all here tonight on this uh, special occasion. We're in Mark chapter 15, if you'd like to follow along, Philip has already read the portion at which we'll be looking, verses 1 through 15, and we'll be continuing on from uh, the point at which Fred dropped uh, off last Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, Fred Sanders drew our attention to the noise that surrounded Jesus' trial which began in chapter 14 as Jesus stood before the religious leaders with their lies and their lying witnesses. It now continues here in chapter 15 before the Roman leader Pontius Pilate with ongoing accusations from the religious leaders, we see that in verse three, and then questions and demands and growing agitation from the gathering crowd, we see that in verses eight, And eleven. Now, noise heightens the intensity of any moment. So, remembering Fred's image of the hundred-headed squawking uh, parrot uh, gives us a sense for just how intense this scene was. Tonight, along with the noise, I want to begin by drawing your attention to the darkness surrounding. Jesus' trial. 15 of the last 21 hours of Jesus' life occurred in the dark. The Last Supper mostly took place in the dark. Jesus' agony in Gethsemane uh, entirely took place in the dark. Jesus' arrest and trial by the religious leaders at which we looked on Sunday took place in the dark. The trial before Pontius Pilate that we'll consider tonight, along with the subsequent one before Herod, occurred uh, under a rising sun. But four and a half hours later, as Jesus' crucifixion commenced, darkness returned for the remainder of his life, from noon until three in the afternoon. The darkness that surrounded the end of Jesus' life accentuated what was taking place, the saddest and profoundest loss of all time it was creation's response to what the creator's own creatures were doing to him you'll recall that on the night that jesus was born the sky lit up like day but here on the day which jesus is killed the sky darkened tonight how how could it do anything else so overall, the setting here is one of gloom, uh, noise, uh, darkness, uh, sadness, intensity, in a word, foreboding. Now tonight, uh, we trans we transition from the uh, religious trial that ends uh, there with chapter fourteen, uh, the scene again at which we looked on Sunday, in which uh, Jesus was speedily tried and uh, falsely convicted for identifying to his true self, the Son of God. We go from that to the civic trial, or the civil trial, uh, which begins here at the outset of chapter 15, where Pilate, uh, the Roman governor of Judea, tried Jesus from his fortress, which is uh, strategically located above the Jewish temple there at Jerusalem. Where, where the Romans could keep a, a strong, a steady eye on all of the inhabitants there during their worship. Now, in this trial, we're going to hear Pilate ask five questions. To begin in verses 2 through 6, he's going to interrogate Jesus. And then in verses 6 through 14, he's going to interact with the crowd uh, by whom all the accusations are being hurled. And finally, in verse 15, Pilate is going to issue a verdict concerning Jesus. And as we listen in, we're going to be able to identify to one degree or another with those responsible for Jesus' death. The religious leaders who led the attack on the Lord. The crowd who followed the leaders in that attack. or, Or Pilate who capitulated to the will of both. And we'll all identify to the same degree with Barabbas, a death row prisoner who was spared his doom so that Jesus could die in his place. Now, before we launch into the passage here, uh, a word about Pilate. Uh, He was a bad man. He uh, was a political animal. Uh, He married his wife, Claudia Procula. Uh, for partisan purposes, to get in good with the authorities. He was a harsh overseer. Uh, He he brought Jerusalem to the brink of rebellion on one occasion by posting flags of Caesar, uh, to whom the Romans referred as Lord, but throughout a city where the people referred to the God of the Bible as Lord, certainly putting them in tension-filled conflict. And on one occasion, Pilate even raided the Jewish temple treasury to pay for um, an aqueduct that he was building. So he was a heavy-handed administrator. He was also just plain brutal, beating those who didn't agree with his pillaging of the temple treasury, mingling the blood of worshipers with their sacrifices in an account that's referred to in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. And attacking a group of Samaritans who were on pilgrimage to uh, Mount Gerizim, uh, uh, their holy spot, an attack that was so ruthless and so awful, it even caused uh, Pilate's superiors a uh, curdle and a recoil, such that they fired him from his position there in Judea. Finally, uh, Pilate was selfish. Eusebius, the ancient church historian, wrote that after Pilate was stripped of his governorship, he ended up losing his way, and he ultimately took his own life. As one writer put it, Pilate was a man who lusted for celebrity and status, who put his career before everything, including people and principle. He lacked the traditional Roman virtues of honor and integrity. and When he finally lost his position, his life was not worth living. He lived for his career, in short, for himself. Now, given this brief portrait of Pilate, the passage before us makes for a very interesting study. Because, you see, on the one hand, Pilate was politically motivated and and clearly controlling and, and blatantly brutal. But on the other hand, Uh, He saw through what the religious leaders were doing to Jesus, and he tried to save him from their murderous intentions. In fact, if if you go to the other uh, Gospels and this account, which uh, helps to uh, broaden the perspective of what's going on here, Pilate does his best to get Jesus off the hook. So, let's see how it happens here in Mark chapter 15. Now, the, the religious leaders had convicted Jesus of blasphemy. Uh, that was a religious conviction. They knew that wouldn't hold up in a civil court. And so, they, they skewed the accusation as they brought Jesus before Pilate to that of treason. And uh, we can assume that because as Pilate begins his interrogation here, the first question of the five that he asks, asks is, are you the king of the Jews? Well, such an accusation naturally puts Pilate and Jesus at odds, right? Because uh, Pilate is the, the Roman uh, a governor of the Jews, but Jesus is the ethnic king, of the Jews, because truth be told, Jesus was the rightful heir to the Jewish throne. That's why the New Testament begins with a genealogy that proves that he is in fact that one, the king. So Jesus shrewdly responds to Pilate's question with these words, you've said so, in other words, I didn't say it, you said it, Uh, they said it. So there must be something to it. And before Pilate could could say anything else, the the chief priests, you see here in verse uh, 3, begin accusing Jesus of many more things. There they go again, the the squawking, hundred-headed parrot. They're they're off to the rim. Why were they so strident? Why were they so anxious to bring Jesus down? Well, one writer Puts forth these three suggestions. Number one, Jesus threatened their power. They wanted total control over the Jewish people, and they didn't want to share it with anybody, and they didn't want to share it with Jesus. Number two, Jesus didn't meet their expectations. They wanted a king who, who rode into town on a horse, which was a symbol of war, not a donkey which was a symbol of peace. And Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem five days before on a donkey. Third, Jesus revealed, in a number of ways, revealed their duplicity. He, he showed uh, the Jewish people that they were empty suits, Jesus' teaching, his presence, his authority exposed the emptiness and deceit of the religious leaders. But instead of repenting from it, they persisted in it all the more, exhibiting their hubris and their disdain for Jesus. Now, from our chair, it's pretty easy to condemn the religious leaders for their hard-heartedness. But in doing so, we also condemn Jesus ourselves, for our own desires to exercise control, uh, uh, revel in self-glory, rationalize our rebellion, which sounds like this one day and then like that on another day. It's our own internal version of the hundred-headed parrot talking down Jesus, talking up ourselves, which only heightens the noise and darkens or deepens the darkness of our own hearts. Well, now comes the second of Pilate's five questions. So we have this din of accusations that are being hurled uh, at Jesus and in Pilate's direction. And uh, Pilate asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? Past Tuesday, I was listening to a news commentator talk about all the accusations that had been brought against Donald Trump by the Manhattan DA. And he said, um, uh, in legal parlance, that's called stacking. Stacking. Well, the religious leaders were stacking the charges against Jesus. See how many charges they bring against you, Pilate asks. But in response to the charges, and unlike the former president, Jesus said nothing, nothing. He rested in his identity and the confidence of his innocence. Such that according to verse 5, Pilate was amazed uh, you could render it marveled. <laughs> Pilate marveled at Jesus' response, a non response to all the accusations. And since there was nothing more that he could say to Jesus, Pilate then turned to interact with the crowd. Uh, take a look at verses 6 through 8 that set up the third of Pilate's five questions. It says, now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And and you'd think that they would ask ask, ask for a Jew who had been uh, unjustly convicted and imprisoned, right? Well, we read on. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, that is release a prisoner. How could Pilate have imagined that the crowd would want to liberate somebody who had been justly convicted and incarcerated versus someone who had been unjustly convicted of the same? Especially since, as we see there in verse 10, Pilate perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered up Jesus. Jesus. In other words, Pilate could see right through the whole thing. He had their number. He knew what was going on. Their accusations were entirely without merit and worthy of dismissal. And so he asks the crowd, so, okay, do you want me to release for you the the king of the Jews? And this is where it gets really ugly. I mean really ugly, because since they were unable to convince Pilate to convict Jesus, well, the chief priests began working their way into the crowd and stirring it up, jacking up their emotions, ginning up a furor, such that they began calling for the release of Barabbas, Now, it's an especially sad moment when you realize that if if anyone had been on Jesus' side throughout his ministry, it was the crowd. It was the people. Uh, When you look back through the book of Mark, you, you see, well, a couple of things in spades. Number one, the religious leaders were against Jesus from the outset of his ministry. But the people, they supported him. Uh, They were astonished with his authority as well as his works. This is just a survey uh, through the book. They spread his fame. Uh, They came out en masse to hear him and to be healed by him. And in response to what Jesus did, they marveled. Uh, They were overcome with amazement. They were astonished beyond measure. They glorified God for what they saw in this one uh, uh who was performing these great deeds and teaching these profound things. And just days before making all of these crazy accusations, they were the ones who shouted, "Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord." How could it have all turned so quickly? It seems impossible. But it did. It's easy to condemn the crowd for their dramatic reversal. But we're guilty of the same, aren't we? For all the times that we have affirmed, even publicly, Christ's place in our lives, there have also been that times when we have followed the siren call of sensuality or popularity or upward mobility or... You fill in the blank. And we displace him. Stuart Townend put it well when he wrote a line in a song that we sometimes sing, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It'd be too much to fathom if it wasn't so often True. Now comes the fourth and fifth of Pilate's five questions. Question number four, there's in verse 12. Then what shall I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And the response of the crowd is identical to the sort of response that we hear today baseless and senseless. Just more and more volume, right? Take a look at verse 13 crucify him! To which Pilate, who was no stranger to poorly reasoned harshness and brutality, responded with, why? What's he done? Even Pilate, as bad as he was, recognized that Jesus was innocent. What has he done? Tell me! Because he hadn't done anything all the things that Jesus had been accused of not being, not being the king of the Jews, not being the son of God, not being the Messiah, he really was. And the crowd could offer no reasonable response to Pilate's question. And so in good 21st century American fashion, the crowd simply jacked up the volume even greater poured on the passion and raised their fists in the air, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate was at a loss. And you can see in in the other accounts, even at this point and beyond, he's still trying to get Jesus off. But Mark, uh, Brother Brevity, uh, brings it to a close here by simply saying, There in verse 15, he released Barabbas. He scourged Jesus, which I didn't describe, but that he used for a a thing called a flagellum, which is just a horrid tool of torture. And he delivered him to be crucified. And it's easy to condemn Pilate for succumbing to the crowd, isn't it? But as we do, we also condemn ourselves. Because I'm sure if you're like me, you can look back and point to a time when you found it a lot easier to keep the peace than to stand up for the truth. Ezekiel 13, 10 through 12. Behave in a way, behave in a way that you once considered abhorrent. Romans 1:32 you found it much easier to put Jesus to death than rather crucify your own fleshly desires. Romans 8.13. In all of these 15 verses, here is the grand irony. This is the grand irony. By all appearances, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. Uh, I mean, that. That's the title of the sermon tonight, Jesus before Pilate. But in reality, Pilate was on trial before Jesus, as were the religious leaders and the crowd. You see, in the end, Pilate is condemned for delivering an innocent man to death, and he knew it. He knew it, and it killed him anyway. And the religious leaders in the crowd are condemned for abandoning Jesus and embracing the already condemned Barabbas, a Messiah of their own making, not one according to the Scripture. Scriptures that the religious leaders in particular knew very well. No, they went after a Messiah who was a zealot, a political activist, a murderous patriot, but they didn't care. They wanted peace and security at any cost. In fact, as one scholar put it, Jesus disappointed the crowd with his inaction. Sounds kind of like today. We don't want your thoughts and prayers, right? The people instead chose lawlessness instead of righteousness, violence instead of love, war instead of peace. But to heighten the irony, the forgiveness for these sins, Pilate's sins, the religious leader's sins, the crowd's sins, Barabbas' sins, and our sins, since we stand in league with each and every one of them, is found in the one whom they delivered over to death. The Apostle Paul clarified what turned this tragedy into something good, And in doing so, it sums up the title of this week's sermon series, The Sufferings of Christ and the Glories to Follow. Paul wrote this, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the suffering. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there are the glories to follow. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is why we sometimes sing, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted because you were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died. Jesus died and rose again. And this is why tonight, in just a moment, we're going to sing, God knew well what it would take to free us all from sin and grave, a perfect man would have to die. And only he could pay that price. And Jesus was that man. And his death was the price that saved us. Please pray with me. Jesus, thank you for enduring the sufferings, uh, the noisiness, the darkness, the injustice, our own mocking voices. Lord, we confess that like the religious leaders, um, we, we want control. Uh, Like the crowd, we want to follow the siren calls. Uh, Like Pilate, there are times when we find it easier to kill you than our own desires. And like Barabbas, we find ourselves condemned to death but then freed from it by way of your unfathomable sacrifice. Jesus, this evening as we focus in and linger long In the shadow of the cross, may our humility deepen, and our gratitude heighten, and our love for you and your world expand, such that on Sunday, Lord, we may rejoice at the door of the empty tomb, and revel in your glories to follow, now and forevermore, world without end. Amen.